Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Jack Roth. Last name is spelled R-O-T-H. Just published a fascinating book. I read through half of it. Title of the book is Killing Kennedy, Exposing the Plot, the Cover-Up, and the Consequences. Just published uh, November 2022. He has a foreword by the great Cyril H. Wecht, who I've interviewed a couple years ago. But it's nice to see his him involved in this. And he has the layout is really something very different. I've done probably at least 10 shows on the Kennedy assassination, different authors. And some of the authors are included in this book. But I learned a lot from this book. There's a lot of names that I wasn't familiar with and a lot of insight. So it's not just in such a that event was so important and so multifaceted that I think Jack did an excellent job of integrating many of the themes involved in what happened on November 22nd, 1963. So I highly recommend this book. It comes in a paperback and a hardcover, but uh, I'm really glad to have him on the show. So Jack Roth, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, William. I appreciate it. Awesome. So for people who may not have heard your name, I, I was listening to some of your other uh, interviews on other podcasts. Can you kind of talk about your background and what led you to putting together this book, Killing Kennedy? Sure. Well, I'm an author, a documentary filmmaker, uh, and I've been uh, I've been a journalist. That's my background. So I've been a journalist for I would say thirty years or so. So, um, but what what got my I've been interested in the Kennedy assassination since the time I was probably I don't know in early teens. Uh, I was born in 1965, so I wasn't I wasn't alive yet when the assassination occurred. But I feel like I grew up and my formative years uh, were the ripple effects of the assassination, right? The counterculture movement, Nixon, Watergate, Vietnam. You know, here I am, this little kid, and I'm like, you know, I remember that. I remember growing up and seeing stuff and hearing stuff. And so, um, but I think, and again, in 1991, uh, like so many other people, when Oliver Stone came out with JFK, I saw that movie and that inspired me to just do a ton of research, uh, just to read as much as I could. And then years later, I always wanted to do something. I, I would, I wanted to contribute to what was out there with the research, but I also knew there'd been thousands of books written on this already. And there were researchers who have been doing this for 30, 40, even 50 years, uh, looking into s specific things, uh, related to the assassination. So what I thought was, well, I'm a journalist. I, I'm, I know I'm good at doing interviews uh, and I'm and asking the right questions. So I thought, well, what if I, because what I was talking to some friends about possibly writing a book and there were certain themes that kept coming up, uh, ripple effects, why it still matters today, uh, present day relevance, the cost of, a, of, of that type of a conspiracy. Uh, so I figured, you know what, let me put together almost like a people's history where I'd interview different people uh, and ask them specific questions based on their background and based on their expertise and also ask other ask everyone the same questions, which were basically would have been the ripple effects and why does it still matter today? And the key was getting the right people. Uh, I, I felt like if I could get the right people interviewed, it would be a, a really compelling read and that it could be a, uh, a jumping off point for people who they could read this and then dive into something 
deeper if they wanted to based on what they learned from the book. So I was really pleased with the way everything turned out. It's almost like one thing led to another and I interviewed one person and then, oh, I got, they introduced me to someone else. And again, some people are more familiar to, will be more familiar to readers than others. Uh, but the insights that I gained and hopefully the readers will gain, I think is the thing that really surprised me the most. Uh, I was, I couldn't believe some of the things I was hearing and I thought I knew everything. (laughs) Well, I learned a lot too. Like some of these people that showed up and some of the connections and so many things happened. It wasn't just the Kennedy death. And I've talked to Mark Shaw about Gilgallen and some of these, uh, what was the other one? Paul Janney of Mary's Mosaic. So, so there's so many things surrounding Kennedy that you included and the different perspectives were really fascinating. Can you kind of talk about, uh, research and talking to these people and what it was like kind of tracking them down. Yeah. It was a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. I had help at the beginning from a a few people, uh, who, uh, who knew that community, the research community. And once I interviewed a couple people and they realized I was professional, uh, you know, I, I was, I, I was doing, I was doing things the right way. I was respectful uh, once that started to get around, then people, you know, I, one interview led to another. And one of the things I wanted to do with the book is humanize the Kennedy assassination assassination. So what started to happen is each of these interviews was a journey. It was a person's journey and it wasn't, it became very personal. Like every interview I did, there was a, at least a, an element of, it being an extremely personal journey, even if they were researchers and they were coming from a very objective standpoint, they went through a lot over the years of trying to research this. And that story was always fascinating. And then some people just blew my mind and the, and the, the level of emotion also really surprised me that after 60 years, people were so emotionally invested still in the assassination. Oh, it is fascinating. And a lot of people like felt risk. They felt their life was at risk. It affected their family going down this road. Some people dedicated decades. So it really was an interesting aspect of the book. Some of the names look, I mean, I'm familiar with some of these other people, but you had people that I'm not really familiar with, like David Mantic and Rivera and Palomar. Can you kind of talk about some of those original researchers and what they added to kind of the corpus of understanding what happened? Yeah. And that was important to me. I actually interviewed, there are 24 people in the book there. I do 24 interviews, but I actually did more, uh, but 24 people made it in because simply it would have been too big of a book. But what, because again, I kept getting one person after the other, but the researchers were important. And that's why I start the book with the researchers in that section, if you will. Uh, They lay the groundwork and they kind of ground everyone from the get-go like this and each has a particular area of research that they are known for david mantic is an md and he studied the x-rays from the autopsy uh and has done phenomenal work on on analyzing that uh and some of the other researchers you mentioned they all just fantastic i mean they and they all focus on specific particular things whether it's what happened to kennedy's body from Dallas Parkland Hospital 
to Bethesda Naval Hospital. Okay, let's go down that journey, that rabbit hole. And they've done 10, 20 years of research just on that. So I was able to, to, to kind of lay the groundwork early on in the book with these researchers who have dedicated, again, decades of their lives trying to, in their way, determine based on their background and what their interest was, a certain aspect of the assassination that stood out to them. Uh, so yeah, that was fun. Those guys were fantastic. Yeah, I didn't know. I mean, Mantic uh, says that Kennedy was shot three times in the head. That to me was re remarkable. I'd never heard that before. So you had that kind of base uh, line of the researchers, but also one thing people kind of overlook, maybe it's uh, in the JFK movie or something like that, is the importance of New Orleans. That's where uh, Oswald was from, right? Wasn't he from? And he bounced through New Orleans with all these strange characters. Can you talk about that part of the book? Yeah. And, you know, listen, in Oliver Stone's film, as we know, JFK, uh, that's the the crux of that story of his, of that particular movie is what in and around was going on in New Orleans. Uh, and so I always had an interest in, wow, there, you're right. There's a lot of really interesting characters. What I quickly learned is that we know very little. We think we might know what was going on in New Orleans in the summer of 1963, but boy, there was a lot more going on in New Orleans in the summer of 63 that from a uh, intelligence community standpoint uh, was just, you know, as important as it gets. And, and would, uh, also, too, in 1963, New Orleans was almost like the Casablanca of, of U.S. intelligence because of it had the port, its proximity to the Caribbean and South America, Cuba. So that was an important uh, intelligence. Uh, there was It was like a hub of intelligence that was going on there. And they also had a lot of different uh, operations programs going on there. And not all were related, obviously, to Kennedy. Uh, they were related to Cuba or they were related to assassinating Castro. Uh, but they were also sheep dipping a man by the name of Lee Harvey Oswald during that time. Oswald's from New Orleans. And, uh, and, and so he was there for that period of time. And, and I learned a great deal about who he was as a person because of the particular people I interviewed that knew him as just a guy, not as a patsy or not as a lone nut assassin, right? But just as a human being. And I thought that insight, that was one of my favorite parts of the book for me was this whole thing of what in the world was going on in New Orleans in the summer of 63. <laughs> it's a very murky city. For people who have not been to New Orleans, it's always had that kind of Casablanca feel. There's all kinds of people traveling through there, lots of different ethnicities and trading. It's just very, and it's, Crescent City has a uh, reputation for corruption. So there's a lot of strange things that went on. Even then, and there was another death. What was the woman's name who... They found uh, her body with her. Like, yeah, the, uh, that was uh, Mary, Sherman. Mary Sherman. She That's was right. a doctor uh, and was a very famous doctor, very, uh, a, a very uh, established and uh, respected doctor in New Orleans. And she was part, she was helping to do some of this cancer research that was going on. But it was funded, part of it was by the CIA. So it was kind of like this, these black operations, these black projects there that, they would use, uh, like, for example, Tulane University had a medical school. 
and Alton Oshner, Dr. Alton Oshner, who was also a famous physician, surgeon, uh, he was, uh, they would use those facilities because Oshner was a CIA asset. The CIA infiltrated a lot of different institutions and many of them were educational institutions because they would do research there under different names and whatever the, the projects they were doing. But in this particular case, uh, Mary Sherman was working on cancer research, but specifically as well, uh, weaponizing cancer. Uh, to, to for the CIA to, in, in an attempt to eliminate Castro and other p undesirables to the CIA. So you had the CIA doing all this stuff. And, and uh, ironically, a lot of these people were the same people that also the names came up during the Kennedy assassination, David Ferry, Clay Shaw, Lee Harvey Oswald. And, and her murder, which has never been solved, uh, is you, you almost, you have to read the chapter be, and the, the book is called, uh, Dr. Mary's monkey. Uh, it's by Ed Haslam. So again, I was able to interview Ed did an extensive interview with him. He's amazing. Did years and years of research on this and his conclusions, you put, they'll put gray hair on you. They really will. I mean, it was amazing what, what they were doing down there. It's incredible. And he was, I think that like Shaw was taking Oswald to, one of the medical facilities there too. Like it was just so unusual. They were ship, dip, ship dipping, right? So that was, he was giving out pamphlets or whatever about uh, fair play for Cuba or whatever. So he, he might not, but I mean, according to Baker, he was, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was much more sophisticated than people might think. I mean, he was killed at 20, age 24, but yeah. he, he was, yeah, she seemed, yeah, yeah she's, he was more well-rounded maybe than people. Would you agree Without with question. Yes. A very intelligent person. Um, you know, a, a bit introverted, perhaps bookish, uh, but that's all he did was read. And he had dyslexia as a child and he worked through that and uh, just was an avid reader. So he was very knowledgeable uh, and again, was fluent in Russian, uh, which is why you know, he was he was part of the false defector program that the CIA was running under William Harvey was in charge of that. And when Oswald, quote unquote, defected to Russia, that was a false defector program. So he was that was through the CIA. And that's why when he came back from Russia with a new wife, Marina, they didn't even question him. Like, here's a guy that defected in the, in the at the height of the Cold War right after the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? or, or I should say before, but do during that period of time, late 50s, early 60s, where there was a lot of tension. And here's a guy who, quote unquote, defects to Russia, is there for a couple of years, gets married, and then decides he wants to come back to the United States. And they don't even blink. And that's just not something that would have normally happened if just a person defected to the Soviet Union. It would have been very difficult for them to get back. If so he was at all, right? <laughs> at all, if at all. But Oswald was a he was a a loyal intelligence asset. When do you think that his intelligence work started? He was at at, at Sugi, right, in Japan. Do you think he was think, recruited in the Marines or something? I think so. A lot of people believe that's when it was. He was in the Marines, and he was he was stationed there. That was all the spy planes. Uh, so he learned spycraft while there and they probably realize, and this guy's sharp he's smart he can handle things he 
you know, he's, they know who they're getting and they know who they want to recruit. So I think at that point he was recruited. Uh, it could have been through Naval intelligence. Uh, but in the end he was a CIA, uh, asset, uh, uh and a CIA, I, and I call him an, an intelligence agent, but lower level. I mean, he wasn't at a very high level. He probably wanted to go to a higher level, but, uh, they used and abused him for, you know, and he was good. He was good at spycraft. When people always talk about, wow, Oswald had all these cameras and he, he was, you know, he had all these really small spy cameras that people found. And well, he was, that was part of what he did. He was really good at photography and he was really good at spy photography, right? And using these really small cameras to take photos of whatever he needed to take photos of. So he was a patriot, um, liked Kennedy, uh, was, was loved kids, really loved kids. There's some stories in the book that people tell me about. They knew him during that time. Not only, obviously he loved his two daughters, obviously, uh, that he had with Marina. Uh, but he was also just really listened to kids. And back then in the fifties and early sixties, adults didn't listen to kids. They were, they were to be seen and not heard, but a guy like Oswald just would talk to him, you know, and, and pay attention to them when they spoke, uh, so you get a, you get a different glimpse of this guy than what the official narrative wants you right. to believe. Right. Like the communist sympathizer. It's really is remarkable. And it's taken a long time to change a lot of those perspectives that were hammered into people in the sixties. But one of the interesting aspects of your book, which you don't see in a lot of, if any kind of JFK investigation books is you talk to people who's were family members of the CIA. One name that pops up, I don't know who Chana Willis is, but I know St. John Hunt, Peter Janney, and Milligan, but uh, maybe you can talk about their insights and perspective into killing Kennedy. Yeah, that was also fascinating and important part of the book because you hear you have four people who I interviewed whose fathers were all in the CIA during that time period. You have Peter Janney, uh, whose father was Wister Janney, who was incredibly high up in the CIA at the time. And, you know, you have to realize all these people also all knew each other because they all lived in the D.C., Maryland area. They were all basically elite blue bloods, Ivy League educated. And so this was this is the way things were done. Alan Dulles, when he was the director of the CIA, he recruited not exclusively, but a, he almost exclusively from places like Harvard and Yale. And he wanted these blue bloods, these the, because you almost had to have there's an elitism that I found existed and still exists to this day and has always existed. And this idea that I'm born into a family and I am meant to rule over the masses. And this is the mindset that they wanted because of the things they were doing. They thought that it was for the best for the country that they ruled over and controlled everyone else in the country. And that was the attitude that the CIA had and some of these other agencies uh, where they recruited these types of people who had that attitude. So for them to say, well, listen, you know, we don't like Kennedy. We got to get rid of him because of what Kennedy Kennedy was trying to change all that. And they were Kennedy probably didn't think that they would have the gall to do it. Uh, which is why he was in an open car that day with no roof. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, I, I think he, he didn't realize how far these people would go to maintain their power and control. 
Yeah, it is remarkable. And they would they all hung out to each other. They knew each other's kids. And the drinking too was an important component of kind of their worldview. Like they're just yeah. It, it yeah, swimming it was in like, alcohol, oh. yeah. <laughs> it was almost collateral damage, but it, because they're doing things that are so nefarious on a daily basis and affecting other people's lives in a negative way. And what I mean by this is, let's say the coup in Guatemala in the late 50s. Well, hundreds of thousands of Guatemalans died because of that coup. Well, that was CIA. And the reason they did that was because of the United Fruit Company. And Alan Dulles and his brother, John Foster Dulles, had tons of stock in the United Fruit Company. And the United Fruit Company, of course, was a CIA front as well. Uh, and we did a lot of, because the United Fruit Company was all over the world and especially Central and South America. So again, it's these horrible things. And you think you're, at first you're a patriot, right? I'm a patriot. So I'm a cold warrior and I'm doing what's best for the country. But over time, it starts to wear on you. And that was was interesting about interviewing these kids of these families, right? And they're adults now, but at the time they were children. They saw it. They saw the damage it did that to their, their their fathers were all a lot for the most part raging alcoholics. The moms became same way because they had to deal with the husbands, you know. And then the kids were they might have had nannies and a bunch of money, but there was no connection to the fathers. And you see this with Saint John Hunt. You know, God bless that guy. I mean, he's such a nice guy, St. John Hunt, but he's he's been damaged his whole life because his father was E. Howard Hunt, period. Right. I mean, he was involved in so many different things, <laughs> Watergate. I mean, it's a tough uh, legacy to have. And especially like Janie, like you're reading through Janie's story and he has more connection to his African-American nanny than his parents in some ways. Like he mentions her as like a huge influence. So. A lot of these people were burdened. You talk about Wisner kills himself because of all this stuff. But I think that even Angleton went into alcohol rehab, too. And Janney, died, his dad died at 59, fairly young. Yeah, from, that's young. You know, the damage. So they carried a real heavy burden. Even the people who, you know, were doing these, uh, you know, the head of the American Pax Americana, American Empire, so to speak. Yeah. Who was Channel yeah. Willis? Like, I haven't heard her name. Can you explain her? And her importance and her family's connection to uh, the Kennedy assassination. Yes, yeah, she she came out fairly, I would say fairly recently with her story, and she held it held on to it for a while. Uh, and uh, her father was in the CIA. He was naval intelligence. He was in the Navy uh, during World War II. Uh, this is that was the for most of these guys that was how that was the path right so they were in world war ii they were in the navy they were wherever and one thing led to another patriot true patriot uh and he found himself he was a he her father was a uh expert he did photography uh he was an expert at that as well not uh, i would say more so than oswald but he used to uh they used to get the the u2 spy planes and any any photography that they got he would make sure it was developed and analyzed and, you know, whether it was from, you know, it could have been from airplanes. Mostly it was from the air. Uh, and, you know, whether it was you know, trying to determine if the, if the Russians had missiles in Cuba, et cetera. So he was, uh, and then what happened was they transferred him to Dallas and maybe three months before the assassination. I can't remember exactly, but it wasn't long before too long before. 
and they gave him this assignment and Chena being his daughter was just one of those headstrong people who kept bugging her dad until the day he passed away. And I was like, dad, what happened? Tell me. And, and her dad would get so upset and then be worried about her, you know, for asking. And then, you know, and, and little by little, she told him these things. And she said that he was part of, he was told that on November 22nd, 1963, he was part of a, uh, a, a, a photography a photo surveillance team if you will and he says that one of the members of his team was lee harvey oswald and that because oswald was good with that stuff and they were all told that th this is what they needed to do it's it's need to know right so you do this you do this on november 22nd you're here oswald you're in this texas school book depository they, they told uh chain his dad they said, you're going to be by the grassy knoll and you're going to be taking f filming something. It wasn't sure what. And she remembers that when they went to visit the grassy knoll years later, and they went to visit Dealey Plaza, the dad stood up in the grassy knoll by the fence and just stared off, like had a thousand yard stare. And she's like, dad, are you all right? And he couldn't even talk. He couldn't talk about it. So it's it basically that she surmised from that anyway, that he was there that day and he probably saw things that he shouldn't. He, well, I since I shouldn't say shouldn't have seen. He was meant to see, but they were so scared. He said that shortly before November 22nd, they actually started to find they started to realize what was actually going to happen that day or could happen that day and they all wanted out but what he said is that the cia threatened all of them and their families they say you're going to go through with this this is your job this is what you do you just show up and do what you're supposed to do wow. and he said one of the guys actually committed suicide because he couldn't deal with what was going to happen but who was the guy one of the guys on his team was oswald and he told chena he said i could tell you that Lee Harvey Oswald did not shoot a gun that day because he was part of my team and my team was just supposed to be in different areas. I was supposed to give film to someone else here and they were supposed to take it from the school depository to this place and da da da. So you had a lot of people in Dealey Plaza that day that had assignments, but they didn't know that there was even going to be assassination. They only knew what they were supposed to do. Right. So it was all com compartmentalized. Wow. Incredible. Total, and totally, a lot of those yeah. people like that's the, the feeling that you see through this people. You ask really good questions about what the consequences of Kennedy's death. A lot of people keyed into that. But there's a pervasive sense of fear in a lot of these stories. And a researcher who just uh, unfortunately passed away, Richard Belzer, wrote a book on a lot of people who were murdered. It was hit list. Right. So he uh, he keyed into that aspect of the story of this kind of like. You could get assassinated. You could end up like Mary Pincho Meyer or some of these other unfortunates. Uh, even even like uh, reverberated to Robert F. Kennedy probably too. Is that it was attached to his brother's death? So really kind of right. terrifying stuff. I mean, there's a lot more to this book. What's the story of the two little girls? I don't know that story. Can you talk about that? So yeah, I was I was fortunate enough to interview two separate two different girls who were both. <laughs> this is ironic, but they were both nine years old the day of the assassination, and they were both in Dallas that day. One 
what is known as the girl in blue because she's actually standing on one of those concrete slabs and you can see her in some of the footage of the parade when uh, of the uh when, when the uh when kennedy's uh motorcade comes by she's there and she got she was wearing a blue dress because she wanted kennedy to notice her and what's amazing about her story is is that she had some family issues uh, with her family and here's this nine-year-old girl who wanted acceptance and to her all she wanted was for john kennedy and or jackie kennedy to look at her and acknowledge her so they do and she says i know they did they did for a split second and she's the happiest little girl in the world and then they make that turn and then five seconds later she's still watching as it's the limits the limo's going away moving away from her and all of a sudden she hears what she thought were fireworks and then she saw this pink spray in and around the car and that was kennedy's head being blown off basically and she said she went from the happiest girl in the world to traumatized girl and and it affected her for the rest of her life and again i wanted these stories in there because listen it, it, yeah it might have happened 60 years ago but this was such a seminal event in our history that it still matters so much and it matters for political reasons and it's but it also matters for personal reasons for you know and and for the people who were there you know it, 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 first of all they're amazing stories and the other girl also nine years old which I found even more interesting as it relates to Oswald because her grandmother owned the boarding house that Oswald stayed in. So she's nine year old. She's nine years old. Her brothers are, uh, I want to say that she has two brothers and they're all around the same age and they all would go after school. They would go to her grandmother's boarding house. So the grandmother could watch them because the mom was working so that they would get to know some of the people who stayed there. Lee Harvey Oswald was one of the only people they really got to know because he was so friendly to them. She tells two specific stories that I have to tell real quick because it says a lot. It says an awful lot. One is, is that she also was dyslexic. Pat Hall is her name. And so she, her grandmother was a, was a headstrong woman. She owned this boarding house and she's like, you know, she wanted her to do well in school. So she'd be studying and doing her homework at her grandmother's house after school. And the grandmother would get frustrated with her. It's like, why can't you understand what you're reading, et cetera. And Lee Harvey Oswald, there were times that he would just pass by and say, go like this to her and, and whisper in her ear and say, never give up. He knew what the problem was and he had the same problem. And he didn't want to interfere with the grandmother, but he wanted her to know, is it going to be okay? Never give up. And the other story is one day, uh, Lee would, the two brothers were boys, typical boys. They wanted to play and do whatever. And Lee would play with them. Whatever they wanted to do, Lee would do. If they wanted to do Cowboys and Indians, he'd play Cowboys and Indians. If they wanted to, whatever it is. So they're on the front lawn and they're playing and they, the brothers started to wrestle and they got into a bit of a, a real fight. So Lee took both of them and sat them on the porch, the front porch. Pat Hall was happened to be there uh, right by the front door, by the doorways. He heard the whole thing. He sat them down and basically told them, he said, you guys are brothers and you have to love each other your whole lives. 
you have to be there for each other and you have to love each other. You can't be fighting. Okay. And he like sat them down and told them this, that gave him this incredible, wasn't even a lecture. It was just basically telling him how important it was that they were brothers and that they loved each other. And it blew this young Pat Hall away. She's like, wow. When everything went down weeks later, they were, the family was in shock. The brothers, Pat says to this day, really haven't recovered. I mean, here was this guy, Lee. Mr. Lee, they called him Mr. Lee. He was so nice and friendly to them. And all of a sudden, he's, he's, he's you know, arrested for killing the president. And then two days later on live TV, he's shot. And they're watching this as a family. It was absolutely devastating. But I was honored to tell these stories because it, it, those stories need to be told. Just so many people were traumatized by that. People who've looked into it, people who've learned the real story. I mean, it's uh, it's pretty clear that that he was right when he said, "I'm a patsy." He was. He probably just realized it too late that he was getting set up for it, which is uh, really unfortunate. I mean, what else is in the book? Like you talked to some of the greats, Peter Dale Scott, Jefferson Morley. I've talked to him four or five times. I mean, and. Uh, what, maybe you can talk about what else is in the book, but also what do you think the reverberating impact is on these families and the country from this event? Kevin Kennedy. Uh, well, well, what I would say is, is that in 1963, there was this ideology known as American exceptionalism. And basically it, it was kind of, it was this, it was an American way of life that personified liberty and freedom, right? We were the best in the world at that time. We were the heroes of World War II. We had a, a strong economy. People could work and earn a decent living and buy a house and have a family. Uh, the, everything. We were the good guys. We wore the white hats. After Kennedy was killed, that sense of American exceptionalism began to erode and it has eroded continuously for 60 years. And it started immediately because people realized that they really couldn't trust the institutions that they thought they could trust. Because even though people, you know, the Warren Commission report came out, and it's like, okay, this is it. It was Oswald. That's it. So many people, even first of all, didn't believe that. But even the ones who did believe it, and this is another part of the book that I get where I get into this. There's a psychological aspect to it where it's called cos cognitive dissonance. So it's the idea that it's so upsetting for a person to believe, to think that their government would do something like this, that they refuse to believe it. That's cognitive dissonance. You feel It makes you feel so uncomfortable. You don't want to go there. So you're like, oh, okay, I believe Walter Cronkite. I believe Dan Rather. I believe the Warren Commission. That's it because I can't handle psychologically the other alternative. So I think subconsciously, subconsciously, I think most Americans knew that there was something horribly wrong about what happened that day. And it wasn't Lee Harvey Oswald, this lone nut communist sympathizer that you know killed Kennedy, that that was not what happened. And it has caused issues in this country ever since. So that the lasting ripple effect, the, the major from a from a 
from a, a big picture view is that everything's changed and everything has gotten progressively worse since then in a lot of ways, especially with government. And I don't know if we could truly heal unless the truth comes out about that. I don't know if it will. So that answers, that's the answer to that question. Uh, but you did, min you mentioned a couple people. One section of the book is, is, is uh, the deep state, the fourth estate and the deep state. And it's the idea when I spoke to these people, obviously Peter Dale Scott talks about the deep state and he is world renowned scholar. I was so lucky to be able to interview him because he's not I used a to walk by uh, when I was at Berkeley. I would walk by Sather Gate with him. Back, I mean, this is like so long ago. Wow, like 25 years ago. Yeah, but I used to read this. There was like a rudimentary website called Deep State, and it had this funny flame things. But that's where you had to find the actual real information. But yeah, even back then, I remember I remember seeing him. He still kind of yeah. looks the same. He looks like. Uh, Kind of gray hair, but uh, he's it's amazing. An interesting and thing, yeah, amazing guy. A true scholar in every sense of the word. I mean, he's written more than I'll ever write in my lifetime. But uh, and again, it would be very enlightening. And and talking about to, you know to Jefferson Morley and Donald Jeffries to try to talk to them about the Fourth Estate, the media, and how the mass media, the U.S. media, failed horribly, failed us horribly when it came to the Kennedy assassination. But what people don't realize is that there was something known as Operation Mockingbird. And Operation Mockingbird was a CIA operation, started it during the Cold War, and the whole goal of it was to, uh, to infiltrate the mainstream media and control the narrative. It was, it was propaganda. It, so you know the CIA and anything we were doing, we had to be the good guys against communism. And people needed to get on board with that. And the mainstream media needed to get on board with that. So they infiltrated all these the, the, the media, you know, New York Times, Washington Post, thousands of others. And uh, they basically ran and said whatever the CIA told them to. So when they were telling them that, oh, the Warren Commission is right and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that Jack Ruby, you know, shot Oswald because he didn't want Jacqueline Kennedy to have to endure a trial. That is the most absurd thing I've ever heard in my life. I have to say it. And people bought that. Not, not everyone. <laughs> you know, I think if you're a critical thinker, you're not buying that. Because that, that I tell people that alone should tell you that there was a conspiracy, a real conspiracy, because that's absurd, as is the magic bullet theory. I mean, those two things alone are the most, it, 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 again, as a, as a rational, critical thinker. There is no way you can accept that as fact. And I think Mockingbird was run by Cord Meyer Jr. I think he was a critical component. So you have this guy involved yes. in the Mockingbird, whose wife eventually gets killed, who's a paramour of Kennedy. It's just incredible. It's, <laughs> it's hard to believe what really I mean, the real facts are even more amazing than the story they put around the uh, Kennedy assassination. But yeah, great book. I mean, I think that it's really fascinating to see how, how similar the perspectives are on these varied people, how they keyed into the real change in the co uh, country and the impact even to this day, like you said, 60 years from now, these people still say it's very important, this whole event. Understanding this event is very important for us as a people in a country. I think it's, uh, 
I think you did a superb job. So congrats on the book. Is there anything you'd like to add or anything I missed? I mean, we're at the 40 minute mark here, Jack, anything you'd like to add? Uh, you know, I would just tell people, listen, this, my goal in writing this book was to create a book that was compelling, well-written, easy to read. Uh, that's why I, I set the book up the way I did, uh, you know, that each chapter is an interview. Um, and I wanted, I, again, read it, but don't, don't listen to me. I, I don't, certainly I'm doing the interviewing, so I'm not really coming to any conclusions. I'm just presenting the information, but, and don't listen. Don't even, if you don't want to, don't listen to the people in the book, do your own research, but please be a critical thinker, open your mind, be a free thinker and understand that did the Kennedy assassination is not what the official narrative has been saying it is. It's not. I think, again, as critical thinkers, we all know that this is the case. We all know we were lied to. Will we ever know who was standing behind the grassy knoll doing the shooting that day or where exactly they did the shooting from or how many shooters there were? Probably never, never. But if we continue to be critical about it, and continue to demand the truth in trying to get new documents and pushing. I think that's the only way we can heal as a country because we've never, it, it, I think the Kennedy assassination has been like a black cloud over us since I really believe that. Um, and you look at all the presidents we've had since it's just a uh, Kennedy was our, it was Camelot. It was our last best chance for world peace to truly be great a great nation with great people. And that was all taken away from us. And, and all I want to do is with this book is put it out there and have people, you know, read it, draw your own conclusions, but please keep an open mind. And where's the best, best place to get it? I know it's on Amazon. Are people able to order a signed copy from your website? Uh, not a signed copy, uh, that they can order it from my website. It's jackrothauthor.com. Because they're all coming from the Skyhorse Warehouse, which is where it's being printed. So the publisher. So, uh, but Amazon uh, certainly is is the easiest place to get it. But if you go to the my website, you can find out a little more about it. And there's also uh, links to like Barnes and Noble and other retailers where you can get it. Gotcha. And that's uh, Jack Roth Author, all one word. dot com. So people can check that out. If you're watching this on Rockfin, you can see the website. And is that the best place to contact you, Jack, as well? Yeah, yes. You can you can email me from there. I've gotten emails from people who've either ordered the book or read it. And I appreciate those. I appreciate people caring, right? And then I love chatting uh, with people and because you know, I know they care. So if they care enough to get with me, I care enough to get back with them. Cool. So people can contact you through that. And it's actually, I mean, I can see the stats on my show and people are still fascinated with the JFK event. I mean, just by listenership. So most of my, you know, those shows that I've done in the past with other investigators have all been some of my most listened to podcasts. But thanks so much for your time, Jack. Again, title of the book is Killing Kennedy, Exposing the Plot to Cover Up. Exposing the plot, the cover-up, and the consequences, and the author is Jack Roth again. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, William. Thanks for having me. I had a lot of fun. All right, cheers. Likewise. Stay there.